Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Beat the Clock, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in November 2018. After you listen to the stories, stick around to listen to our special guest, Crystal Frost, a local media personality and frequent hearsay storyteller, as she speaks with me about the theme for our next show. In our first story, Leslie Ty's date is a little judgmental about biological clocks. Okay, so I, I think over the years with hearsay, I've told a few stories about living in Los Angeles in my 20s. And um, that's one of the, that's the story, one of the stories I'm going to tell tonight. Um, uh, living in Los Angeles in my 20s and internet dating, which was actually really awesome, believe it or not. Um, in my 20s, um, that was the way that I met people. And um, I saw it as a way to um, just connect. Like I didn't really have expectations that this was, I was going to meet the one. Um, and it was just like, it was the best way and actually, oddly enough, the safest way, uh, in Los Angeles to meet people, to be able to kind of get to know them a little bit and then, you know, find a a nice coffee place to meet for the first time. Um, so I did this a lot in my twenties. Um, it was about 2003. Um, and I had a coffee date with a guy named Dean. Um, my, my best friend and roommate at the time called him old Dean he was a little bit older than me, um, which really wasn't unique either. I kind of, in my 20s, tended to gravitate towards guys who were older than me. Um, just felt, I, I don't know, I just didn't connect with most guys that were my age. Um, and uh, But he was on the higher end. He was probably in his early 40s, and I was in my late 20s, which is really weird because I can't imagine now that I'm 42, I can't imagine dating someone who's like 27, but... <laughs> Whatever. Um, so we had a we had a coffee date. Uh, old Dean, um, I, nice nice guy. Um, you know, good looking guy. He was maybe two inches taller than me, so I saw like this this like big smile when he saw me because I was shorter than him. Um, we talked, you know, did our usual kind of like just kind of the getting to know and and talking about some of the stuff we'd maybe chatted online about. Um, and, um, you know, again, it was just like a kind of a nice conversation. We had some things in common, both worked um, somewhere in the film industry, um, both, um, you know, liked sci-fi or liked kind of nerdy things, um, liked to both liked to perform. Uh, so it was, you know, really light, you know, not very heavy conversation, but, but it, was, it was good. Um, I should say it was kind of at this weird place at that time because I, was, I had been up here for a semester teaching. I still lived in Los Angeles officially, but I was kind of not sure where my life was going to go, if I was going to end up here or in Los Angeles or kind of split my time. And so I really was not looking for anything serious. I really was just looking to have dates, to meet people, interesting people, maybe make new friends, maybe something more would happen, but I was not at all looking for anything serious at the time. So, um, but we had a great first date. I thought, yeah, it's worth it to have a second date with, the, with this guy. So we set up, you know, the dinner date, which of course is the, like the more commitment, right? You're stuck for a longer amount of time. And maybe some things start to come out that, don't, that doesn't come out on the first date, right? You get to know maybe some things that they held back at first. Um, so 
we met for dinner, um, you know, started talking about things. And, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of had gathered from our first meeting, but he hadn't talked as much about was the performing that he did was actually with his church. Um, so he um, performed a lot of like pageants and plays with his church, um, which was totally cool. Um, I am not necessarily an organized religion kind of person. I was raised Unitarian Universalist. Um, I do like to go to church sometimes. I'm now married to a Catholic who is a Lutheran minister, or not, not a Lutheran, um, Lutheran um, choir director, excuse me. So, so, um, so you know, I wasn't, didn't have an issue with him, but it was obviously that, you know, Going to church every Sunday was really important to him. He was very invested in his church. I don't remember the denomination, but it was some Christian denomination. So, but it was great. And I, you know, it's like, as long as you're okay with, you know, I'm probably not going to be the girl that's going to go to church with you every Sunday, but it's okay. Again, we're just having a second date. We're just getting to know each other. It's all good. Um, the kind of performing I did was in things like hair. <laughs> I had done recently, and I had been fully nude on stage in hair. So, again, a little bit different kind of type of performing. That's okay. Um, so then we were talking more about work and you know what we do for a living, and he got a little bit more specific about his work in the film industry, and um, you know he's talking about how you know he was now getting to like do some writing and directing with a company that he worked for, and that was really exciting. And he was working, got to work on like these spoofs, I guess you might call them, of like Star Trek or like kind of sci-fi stuff. And in fact, he worked in the porn industry. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I was, oh, oh, okay. You know, again, I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I'm a, you know, that's cool. As long as your company is, you know, ethical and everybody's treated correctly and everything. And you know, so, so again, this guy's starting to get kind of more complicated and interesting in a way, right? Because he's like, goes to church every Sunday. But he obviously, you know, doesn't see sex as shameful or that it's just for procreation. He has kind of like this, you know, attitude about sex is, you know, porn is okay. So, okay, well, this guy's really interesting. So then we start talking about something that was probably the thing that was going to say, we're, nah, this is not going to work out. This is not going to get to the third date. And that he was, you know, being in his early 40s, starting to feel his own biological clock, clock starting to tick. And, you know, realizing he really wanted to find someone to settle down, have a family. He really wanted to be a father. That was important to him. And, um, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm not really there yet. don't think that's going to work out. But I, I also had this realization that that was actually really, I hadn't thought about this before, that it was actually kind of tough for a man, right, getting to a certain age and that he, he, he couldn't just, become a single parent, you know, and realizing that, you know, I always knew that I wanted to be a mom. That was really important to me. And I had always thought, well, you know, if I don't find someone to have kids with, I can at least try on my own. You know, I can go get artificially inseminated, right? I can, I can have a baby potentially if, if everything's okay. Or, um, and, and I hadn't really thought about how, wow, that, that really is kind of a difficult place to be. Um, you, you know, he has to find a womb <laughs> in order to have a child um, unless he tries to go the adoption route, which I would think is probably, you know, not easy as a single man. So, you know, so I told him this. I was like, wow, gosh, yeah, that really, that would be really hard. You know, at least I, I could try to have a kid on my own. And he was like, what? I was like, well, because I'm a woman, so I could, you know, 
if I, if I get to a place in my life where I don't have someone else, but I, I know I really want to be a mom, I could try to be, I could still try to be a mom, but that's harder for you. And he was like, but you, you wouldn't do that, would you? I was like, well, yeah, I, I totally would. You know, it's, I really want to have kids. I want to be a mom. He was like, but no, that's just wrong. And he, and he goes onto this long diatribe about how it's like morally incorrect to try to be a single parent and how like I would be making a choice that would be damaging a child and like is just completely wrong and not, you know, the intention of, of being, you know, of raising a child. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so... You're in the porn industry, <laughs> and that's okay. You're very, very religious, but porn industry is okay. But somehow, it's not okay to make a conscious choice to be a single parent. So I went off on him. I mean, we just proceeded to have like a huge argument where I said, are you kidding me? As long as a child is loved and nurtured and cared for, and by the way, I believe whether a child has two parents or four parents or, you know, a mother and a father or a father and a father or whatever, like they should have multiple adults in their life that are looking out for them and nurturing them. And that is the best way to raise a child. It doesn't matter how many biological parents are in their lives. Well, he, no, he was not going to see it any other way. So we argued and we argued and we argued for a while. And then I was just realized, I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time to try and prove to this guy, you know, that he, that, that, that we just, we just had to agree that we, that we did not agree on this. So needless to say, that was the last date with old Dean. Um, I did try to, um, I did try to still be friends with him, and I'm, I'm not really sure why. I think I tried to, like, prove that I was, I was not judgmental and that I accepted people for who they are. I don't know. So I invited him to my birthday party. <laughs> so he showed up in, like, leather pants, first of all. Yeah. I mean, again, just like, wow, who is this person? So he showed up in leather pants. There was a swimming pool, so then he proceeded to take off the leather pants, and he had a little Speedo underneath. And then he proceeded to, like, swim and, like, creep out all of my female friends, like, all through the rest of the party. And um, I was like, bye, Dean, when he left. And I was like, never call, never, nothing, 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 nothing. Um, yeah, so I think I just realized at the time that, like, okay, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that I have time for people who, who I'm not going to connect with that much. Like, I, again, wanted to just meet people and make new connections, but that, that can only take you so far. Thank you. <laughs>
ended up forgiving him and let him keep the motorcycle. And it was a good thing that she did because it is part of what led to this story. It was probably his personality, and admittedly my mother's infinite patience, that kept him that motorcycle and made this story possible. He was bigger than life. People loved him. He, people were drawn to him. His laugh and his huge smile just brightened a room. He loved life and people in a nearly indescribable way. He wasn't a complicated man, but finding joy in his life was never particularly simple. He loved his family, the damn Detroit Lions, thanks dad, and finding joy in his career. But again, not particularly simple. He went to college, he met my mother, he went to the police academy, he sold cars, he got a job as a cop, he got laid off, and then moved with his family in tow to go to law school. In all of my developing years, both during law school when he was there and afterwards when he became an assistant prosecutor, I thought he was strict. And I lived in continual childhood fear that I'd somehow be in trouble with him. I mean, didn't we all in some context? I was a firstborn, a firstborn son. My father gave me an awful lot of trouble. He was making an example of me. And we all, to some extent, have some daddy issues inside of us, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but the fact is that he was a former cop, and then, at that time, an assistant prosecutor. There was nothing I could do without him finding out. In fact, one night when I was 16, I was driving in a car. I had four of my friends in the car with me, which is just a complete recipe for disaster, or at least for doing really stupid things. And so one night I got pulled over, twice. <laughs> and I remember at the second stop, the cop said, it was, I was actually rushing home for curfew, so I was speeding. And the cop said, we won't tell your old man. And I said, he's going to find out. He's going to have coffee with you in the morning. <laughs> There's really no avoiding it. But So I fessed up to my dad. What I didn't tell him was that right before we got pulled over the second time, we had just thrown Taco Bell food at a high school, fellow high schooler's house, which to this day is the worst use of great Mexican food I've ever seen. <laughs> I also found little ways, though, to hold my own over the years. In 1996, he decided that he was going to run for prosecutor so it could be the elected prosecutor in our small county in southwest Michigan. I was a senior in high school at the time and had that terrible hair in the mid-90s. You probably remember it, the long on top and shaved underneath. <laughs> it was the late 90s, sue me. <laughs> but it was cool then, sure, and I, I think I partially loved it that he, it pissed him off a little bit. He implored me to cut it for those family photos that you have to have on the back of your postcard. You've seen thousands of them, right, in the last six months. I preferred not to. I'm not exactly sure that I consciously understood that I was just trying to upset him, but when the election ended and I cut my hair, <laughs> there was really only one explanation. <laughs> to make matters worse, he didn't win. And I know it wasn't because of the hair, but I still feel like a bit of a prick about it. Our relationship was never particularly open. In college, I spent the summer after my freshman year working three jobs paying off credit card debt that you get your freshman year, you know, at those tables where they give you free money that you'll never have to repay. <laughs> so I worked three jobs, and after three months of having no time to spend any money, I had paid off zero of those dollars. <laughs> and my father, having a son who had never done drugs, never gotten in trouble, looked at me and said, so where'd the money go? I thought, this yeah, he's, he's actually asked me. I said, Dad, do you think I blew it on a drug problem? 
She said, well, where else did it go? <laughs> so at some point over the time and years, our relationship improved. It may have been because of the law, our shared love of the law. I went to law school where he went to law school. I wanted to be a prosecutor like he had been, or even our love, our shared love of, of the stage. We were actually on stage together. We did Music Man in somewhere around 1994. The whole family did. Or it may have been necessity. He had been in a car accident right after that election that he lost in 1996. And he never really beat the pain or his related struggle with painkillers. We talked a lot about his struggles in those days as friends and less as father and son. After law school, I didn't become a prosecutor. It was 2006. There were no government jobs to be had. And what I did have, though, was a, an offer from a large law firm based in Lansing, making more money than I thought I would ever make. I mean, prosecutors make teacher-like money. <laughs> and I, I couldn't actually imagine doing their kind of work. It was boring. I was stuck in an office. I had planned to be in front of juries. I wanted to, I'm a stage actor. I wanted to be in front doing something that was going to pay me a regular wage, acting and performing with the law, of course, and only putting terrible people away. But I remember having a conversation with my dad as I drove up a parking lot. It's, it's strange, in a parking ramp, and you end up going in circles and circles and circles and talking about the struggle and my difficulty in making this decision. And he said, Joe, for that kind of money, you can do anything for a year. <laughs> he was right. I made it four years. <laughs> In addition to the law, though, I had years earlier adopted his love of motorcycles. And that new job, that brand new job, paying all of that money, made it possible for me to buy a brand new motorcycle in 2006. And the intent was to buy one that he and I could ride together. Now, I didn't buy a cool Harley. I bought a terrible Japanese motorcycle that looked really cool, though. It looked kind of like a Harley, sounded like one, not nearly as loud as his. But it was cool. And in June of 2006, between jobs, I had two weeks. I smartly took two weeks off, and we took this trip. And we had no plan. I don't know why we had no plan, but we had no plan. And we drove north from Lansing, and we tried to find water, and we went west and we stayed in Ludington, and we drank. And then we went west and north further. We went up the Leelanau Peninsula. We had all-you-can-eat shrimp at the casino. <laughs> I'd never been up the Leelanau Peninsula. I, I now am in Traverse City somehow telling a story. I live in Cadillac, and we were in, on the Leelanau Peninsula. We had all-you-can-eat shrimp, but there, was, there were no, hotel, no rooms in the inn that night. And we stayed at the M22 Motel. I don't know if you know it, still there amazingly <laughs> and he drank Jack with a Bud Light chaser he didn't drink very much I, it was either my mother or relatedly his inability to handle his alcohol but we just had fun we talked we didn't talk about the future we didn't talk about the past we didn't talk about his troubles or his struggles to keep a job or to beat the painkillers we just had fun we avoided any real reality but it was going to rain the final day. And so we came home a day early. It's really my only palpable regret for that whole trip. For the next three weeks, as, <clears throat> excuse me, as my job started, my new job, I talked on the phone every night about my new job, about his, uh, a lead on a new job for him, about his need to go get new suits, ones that fit him. 
But there was one night he got upset. I, it, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure at who. I, I can't remember. But I do remember it wasn't me. All I can remember is that he hung up the phone. I stared at my phone, trying to make sense of, it seems silly, maybe now, at, at what happened. We'd spent years not talking about anything that really mattered, including our feelings. But that march of time and the circumstances of life had somehow changed that. In this new world, that was not how conversations ended. I called him back immediately. I admonished him for ending the call incorrectly. I reminded him that our calls ended with, I love you. He said it. I said it. We hung up. We didn't talk the next night for no particular reason. He didn't call me. I didn't call him. And two nights after having to call back to correct the situation, my phone rang at 1.30 in the morning. I remember thinking as I stumbled across my darkened apartment room floor, trying to find my cell phone across the room because I needed to be over there because I would keep turning it off in the morning. <laughs> it would never wake up. That there was nothing good that could come from a call at this hour. I was right. It was my mother and screaming, your dad is dead. He passed away from a heart attack. Who knows what caused it? It could have been his 40 plus years of smoking, being overweight, or that struggle with painkillers. It doesn't really matter. What matters is, damn, I got lucky. With just enough sense to call him back and say what I knew I needed to say. In the years since, I found theater again after 10 years off. I quit that job and I found a new path that somehow led to Cadillac <laughs> and this place and this story and you people. And I still spend a lot of time and effort balancing my future hopes with today's joy. I think I always knew that nothing is or was guaranteed but some luck and a little bit of divine providence for me proved it. Today I say yes to more opportunities, stories in Traverse City, and friends and experiences as I can. And I say I love you a lot. Thank you. Next, Janelle Bowers only has so much time for the birth of her first child to take place in the venue she wanted. We're just going to keep the kid train going. I don't know. How many people here have had kids? Is there a lot of people that have had children? All right. Okay. So I don't... I probably shouldn't have had kids, honestly. Like, I don't have that much patience, and I think I thought that I, like, there's part of me that, like, wants to be this, like, er earthy witch mother person. But, like, in actuality, I'm just not, and I have, like, zero patience. Um, and so I had, I, I got, there was, like, this period. It was, like, two weeks when I was, like, 27, where I was, like, I am supposed to have this little blonde child baby. And then I, like, decided to have a kid. Um... I'm really happy to have my kids. That, that sounds bad. But anyway, 
So, uh, but I did it in like, I was like, I am going to have a child and I'm gonna do this exactly right. But of course there's like no right way to have kids, right? So I thought when I got pregnant, I thought, I know, like I'm gonna read everything I can possibly read about having a baby because like somehow that'll make me birth better. I don't know what in the world I was thinking. And I was like that annoying pregnant lady. You guys have all met her. Maybe some of you have been her. I was her where I was like, I will allow myself to have pizza if I make it by hand out of organic spelt flour. <laughs> and I will tell all of you about how like fit and great I am going to be at birthing a child. Of course, like you don't, it doesn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> it totally doesn't matter. And I was so sort of obtuse about it that I didn't notice for like a month and a half that like my belly kept like contorting into all these like crazy shapes. And I would just be like, the baby's moving and I'm small. But what was actually happening is I was like fully having like preterm labor contractions and I just like didn't know. Um, and so the day before I was, I was due on July 20th, the day before Father's Day, which happened to land on June, June 20th, so a month early, I turned to my ex-husband. Mind you, I had been, we had been out swimming all day that day, and he helped some friends drink the better part of a bum jug of Carlo Rossi. You know what I'm talking about. So he was in great shape. He was feeling good. The whole top of my belly was sunburned. Just the top. <laughs> and so we're getting ready to go to bed, and I say, tomorrow's going to be your first Father's Day. And he says, because this is just how my ex-husband is, um, he's very contrarian, and he says, I'm not a father until that baby is born. And I was like, oh, come on, but you are, you face the pheasant spirit. And then we went to bed. And mind you, we like done all this insane shit. Like, I'm not kidding you guys. I like went to the thrift store and like bought old t-shirts and like sewed my own cloth diapers. <laughs> but I hadn't, like, I was so, I don't, I was like 19, 27 going on night, like 12 years old. I had no idea what was going on. Like I didn't realize you needed like a waterproof barrier. So so I had like all these like things for them to pee on, but nothing to like keep the pee off the rest of the clothes because I just had actually no idea what the fuck I was doing. But I like thought I figured it all out, you know. I like built this thing. I can't even remember what it's called, but it's like it's like a baby hammock that they use in like I don't Jamaica or some such thing. I made it out of like an old sheet that I bought from a thrift store because I was yes I was that hippie. Um, but, like, we hadn't even put the car seat in the car. Like, I didn't have a bag packed. We hadn't had a baby shower. Like, I didn't, there wasn't a bottle in the house. I didn't have a breast pump. Like, I didn't have a pet. Like, I, I had nothing that you actually functionally need to have a child besides boobs, right? <laughs> like, they, the boobs came with me. So, at four in the morning, and I don't know how this happens, but when your water's about to break, I 
somehow you know it's like this signal goes to your brain so I shot out of bed mind you I'm naked with just a sunburned belly it's all I'm wearing is a sunburn um I shot out of bed and I was like oh my fucking god my water is gonna break right now and I took off like 50 yard dash to the bathroom which I'm sure had to be hilarious to see. Like an eight-month pregnant woman just breaking for it. Water breaks totally mid, midway. Hardwood floors, giant splash. My ex-husband comes out of the bedroom like, what the hell just happened? And I said, my water just broke. And he goes, well, what the fuck does that mean? And I said, it mean, we had like gone to birth classes and everything. I mean, it, it read every, we had no idea. I cannot express to you how much we had no clue what was happening. And he says, well, what does that mean? And I said, it means you're going to be a father today, you asshole. <laughs> but the thing is, in all of my preparation, I did know that I didn't want to have uh, a medicated birth. I knew that I wanted to have a, a, a natural birth. And so luckily, down, I was, it was in Metro Detroit, in Southfield, they, they have this hospital that has like a birth center on one floor and then it, of the hospital where it's like, it's like fancy uh, hotel rooms, essentially, with like neonatal resuscitation stuff in the room. And they have a group of midwives that attend people. And then there's a regular labor and delivery floor. Well, you couldn't deliver in the birth center unless you were 36 weeks. I was 36 weeks by four hours. So I call my midwife, and I'm like, Sarah, my water just broke. And she's like, oh, shit. Like, what, what was your duty? And she looks, she's like, okay, you're good. You're, like, just at the 36-hour mark, or 36-week mark. She's like, but since your water broke, I wasn't in labor at all. My water had just broken. She was like, you, you're so early we can give you 12 hours from the time your water broke until we have to induce you. And I had read all of these horror stories about like if someone's induced, the, the rate of C-section goes up. Oftentimes women can't withstand the pain because it's so much more than your body would naturally produce and so you end up having to have an epidural and this and that and the other. And I was like really committed to having a natural birth. So I'm like, okay, what do we do? Mind you, ex-husband's like freaking out trying to figure out how to get a car seat in the car. Like, the bases are surprisingly challenging to figure out, especially, like, they just don't, they're not intuitive at all. So I'm also, like, trying to pack a bag. I, like, pack only pants. Like, so ill-prepared. We get to the hospital, we, we get to the birth center, and I walk in, and, and much to my delight, it's this, like, 60-year-old, like, old butch, right? You know the ones. Like, the old, like, the old mama butches. And she looks at me and she goes, ah, you're the 36-weeker, aren't you? And I said, yes. And she goes, bitch, you look like you did shots before. Come here. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry. She goes, y you're taking some castor oil. Now, I don't, I don't know how much you know about castor oil. Um, it's meant to be stimulating, let's say. But I'm committed. I'm, gonna, I'm like, okay, D, what are we going to do? And she's like, first of all, drink that shit like it's whiskey. And I'm like, on it. So like, drink the shots. And then she's like, whatever you can do, you got to get this thing stimulated. So there are all, I read all the books, right? There are all these things you can do to like stimulate birth. 
there's like acupuncture and there's acu uh, acupressure and there's you know aromatherapy and you can do lunges and you can dance and you can bounce on the ball and you can do nipple stimulation so here I am <laughs> having drank this castor oil and I'm like bouncing on the ball like playing with my nipples like yes this is gonna happen we're gonna do it like gotta breast pump on both like okay we're gonna do it we're walking through the hallways and we're taking these big lunges me and my ex-husband, we're like dancing and singing. We're walking like this through the halls of the hospital. And we do that for hours and like nothing is happening at all. <laughs> like I'm having a contraction like every four minutes. And I'm kind of like, I mean, I guess maybe something's happening. So Dee checks me and she's like, ah, you're only like four centimeters dilated. She's like, I can get you another two hours get you another two hours. But you gotta do, like something's gotta happen or you're gonna get transferred. And she really, she could just see the disappointment in my face, you know, that I was, she was giving me the two hours because I didn't need the room, essentially, is what happened. But you remember about the shots <laughs> a few hours before? Let me just take a survey of the room. Um, how many of you have seen Dumb and Dumber? <laughs> you remember the scene where he's grabbing the, uh-huh. It's a really accurate representation. But if anybody knows me very well, um, luckily I usually only date out of town, so none of you people know this much about me, but um, I'm a really shy pooper. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't, want, I don't want you to, we're gonna pretend like it doesn't happen and if it does, it comes out with bows on it. But like I'm in labor, right? So I'm like in the bathroom and people, it like gets labor going, but like my doula and my ex-husband are outside the door and they know not to come in because like it's not a happy situation happening in the bathroom. And they're sticking their head in like, Like, it's fine, go away. And then I get in the shower, and all I can do is go between the toilet and the shower. And then I start sort of shrieking in this way that is maybe not the most normal. And they come in to check on me, and I, I look at them and I say, I'm gonna die now. This has only been like 30 minutes since she checked me and I was four and she was like giving me the pity two hours. And I was like, it took me 12 to get to four. It's only been 30 minutes and it hurts so much more than it did before. And how I would send me to the other place where they just give you drugs. <laughs> That's maybe fine. And they come... And it wasn't even like a desperation of, of I'm going to die now. It was like a, that's just what happens next. <laughs> like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die now. And they, and my doula, uh, bless her heart, she looks at me and she goes, yeah, it hurts a lot, doesn't it? And I was like, yeah, it does, yes. She was like, yeah. 
it's not going to get any better. <laughs> and Dee comes in at one point, and she, she grabs me by the face, and she says, Sister, you got to stop letting that energy all out of the top of your throat. You got to send it down the bottom like you put it in there. And I was like, what do you even mean? I actually loved her. I, I have a, I'm crass, so I, enjoy, I appreciated all of these people being like this to me. But I didn't know. And then I was sitting there, and she had me by the face, and I said, Dee, I really have to go to the bathroom. And she said, that's just the castor oil, honey. And I was like, no, but it's a lot of pressure. And she was like, oh, oh, okay, okay. Here, come on, go, go to the bed. So she checks me, and she goes, holy shit, sister, you're at a nine. <laughs> and grabs me by the face and kisses me. On the mouth. <laughs> and there had been this big, beautiful bathtub that I had been begging to get in. And they wouldn't let me because it was going to slow my labor down or so everybody thought. And so I was like, can I get in the tub? Can I get in the tub? Mind you, the midwife's not even there. Like, no one's there. No one's prepared for anything. I'm just like trying. I had been trying to like get under the 12-hour mark, and I would thrown everything at it. So they're like, yeah, yeah, get in the tub. Get in the tub. So I get... There's actually a picture of me. It's like the saddest thing. I'm like all super pregnant. And I, sh I swear to God, there's like an inch and a half of water in this bathtub. <laughs> I'm like laying in there like trying to be like, this is great, guys. It's awesome. And I get in and I was like, I think I have to push. She's like, get the hell out of that tub. They're going to kill me if you have that baby in that tub. Get out of the tub. So I get out of the tub. And then a baby happened. Like, it was like two pushes. And the midwife comes in as like the baby is being born. And all the time it like didn't occur to me that it might be concerning that I was like having a premature baby. Because again, let's just, I can't emphasize enough to everyone how incredibly ill-prepared I was. The fact that I had no shirt for after the baby was born because I had only packed pants. And then it didn't occur to me that like my baby would be like six pounds, you know, like this was premature. Like it didn't occur to me that anything would be wrong. So he was born really fast. He was like 10 minutes. He was born. Midwife barely made a move. Turns out that's just how I have babies. My second one was totally born exactly the same way. And that, but apparently that's just how I work. But at the time, it felt like this, like, oh my God, you know, I, there was so much riding on it. And in reality, it was the beginnings of the challenges that we would consistently go through, right? But in that moment, in that moment, we beat the clock. Next up, Matt Soderquist signs up to swim the Straits of Mackinac as part of a charity marathon, but has his training for this moment adequately prepared him? So I'd been in the water for five hours before I started to hallucinate. It was subtle at first. Kind of like at Thanksgiving dinner when you eat too much and you sit on the couch and you start to go into that dream state where you can still kind of hear everybody's voices around you, but you're also probably at the same time drooling <laughs> down your lip. 
But it was Labor Day 2015, and while 50,000 people walked across the Mighty Mac Bridge, 80 of us were swimming underneath the bridge. It was called the Mighty Mac Swim, and it's a four-mile charity open water swim across the Straits of Mackinac from St. Ignace to Mackinac City to raise money for Habitat for Humanity. Now, I've loved the water since I was a kid, and my dad pulled the classic move when I asked him if he could teach me how to swim by just tossing me in the deep end. I swam competitively in middle school and high school and dabbled a little bit after as an adult in short triathlons and open water swims. And swimming became a favorite activity with my family and my children. So when I heard about the Mighty Max swim, I thought, what better way to show my seven, eight, and 10-year-old what their old man is made of? <laughs> now, my son, the oldest, he thought it sounded great. My middle daughter, always the peacekeeper, went, was excited without question. But my youngest daughter, Violet, now Violet, she just tells it like it is. And she says, a four and a half mile swim? Uh, it seems kind of out of reach. <laughs> I, said, I, don't, I don't think you can make it, Dad. Now, I have read a lot of motivational books. <laughs> but I can tell you there's nothing more motivating than your seven-year-old daughter telling you you cannot do something. <laughs> okay. So over the winter, we swam every weekend. We were in the community pool. I'd swim laps at 6 a.m. before work. I'd go on my lunch break. I'd shut down the pool in the evenings. I constantly smelled like chlorine. And in the spring, I set a goal to swim across 100 lakes. And the kids and I would map out a handful of lakes for, to swim that day, and they'd play on the shore while I swam out and across and came back. We'd get lost trying to find no-name lakes down dirt roads, and they'd laugh when I'd come out of the water filled with mud and leeches. They played on the beach, on the sand, in Sleeping Bear Dunes, and they cheered me on as I swam across the little Traverse Bay from Harbor Springs to Petoskey. We swam in the sunshine, and we swam in the downpouring rain. And by the end of the summer, my car was so filled with sand that you couldn't see the carpet anymore. On Labor Day, we'd estimated our finish time would be about three and a half hours. But by the time that we'd reached the first tower, we knew we'd grossly underestimated. The wind, the waves, and the ice-cold water. At one point, shortly after we had started, I could start to see the bottom again, and I realized that we were not actually making any progress. In fact, the current was actually pushing us backwards, and for about a half an hour, we had to swim double time just to get through that strong current. By the middle of the bridge, we were battling four-foot white caps. It was like being in a never-ending pillow fight 
with your hands tied behind your back. Swimmers were dropping out, having only trained for what they expected might be a three-hour swim. I didn't know if I was going to make it, but I knew that I wasn't going to quit. At four and a half hours, our group of swimmers decided to make a dash towards the finish. We'd been stopping every 30 minutes to refuel and rehydrate, but every minute that we stopped swimming, the current pushed us further and further away. We calculated that if we didn't stop, we should be able to finish in about an hour. And our once tight group of swimmers completely went rogue. I lost track of them. In between the swells, I could see a head in front of me and a couple swimmers far behind me. So I just put my face in the water and I swam. I was completely exhausted. I was stripped down emotionally, physically, spiritually. Staring into the abyss, I realized I couldn't remember the last time that I'd taken a breath. Even lifting my head out of the water to get a breath required too much energy that I didn't have. Now, typically, I breathed on every third stroke, so I thought I should start counting how many strokes I take in between breathing. And when I got to 10, I realized I should probably lift my head out of the water. But I wasn't panicked, and strangely, I was really calm. I've often dreamed that I could breathe underwater. And it felt like I was in a dream. Like instead of swimming, that I was actually flying. And I was moving through the water with ease. My sentence, my senses became super heightened. And I could smell all these schools of fish swimming around me. Under my own duress, I had moved through this survival mode and my muscles and my fuel were just completely exhausted. And now I'm burning my brain cells and I have tunnel vision and I'm in this flow state and I'm completely unstoppable. I'd become part animal or rather tapped back into the animal that is in all of us. I was overcome with this feeling, this deep connection to this vast body of water. And I'd pushed and pulled and prodded and been swallowed whole. And I'd become part of nature, not something separate from it. Then I saw it. It was the bottom of the lake. I lifted my head and I was only 200 yards offshore and I was still mostly human with a job, an email, and kids. Three kids who were on the shore who had been waiting for six hours and 7.6 miles since I'd started. And as I hugged my kids, I realized that this whole adventure wasn't about me trying to prove to my daughter that her dad was some kind of superhero, but rather this entire journey 
the hours in the pool, the hundreds of lakes we swam together. It was about cultivating a deeper connection with each other. Only about half of the 81 swimmers who started ended up reaching the shore in Mackinac City. But combined, we rose over a quarter million dollars for Habitat for Humanity. Now, the registration for the 2019 <laughs> Mighty Max Swim just opened this fall, and I asked my now 10-year-old youngest daughter, Violet, if she thought her old man could finish it again. And she looked at me, and she took a really deep breath. I don't know, Dad. That's a really long swim. <laughs> Challenge accepted. In our last story, Elon Cameron has to finish her board exams within a given time frame, but her test-taking anxiety isn't making it easy. Um, my board exams were a thing that I thought about before I even applied to go to acupuncture school. I reached a point where I knew that this work was my calling and I had to do it. And so I had the uncomfortable conversation with myself that was like adult me saying, you're going to do this no matter what. You're going to complete all of it. It's really important. And then like teenager me was like, fuck you, I'm going to drop out. And I hid under the covers for two days. <laughs> So when I enrolled in school to become an acupuncturist, I promised myself that I, I would do it. I'd figure out a way to do it. And I almost believed that I might be able to. Um, three people dropped out in the first two weeks. Uh, by the end of the first semester, we had lost seven people from my cohort, all of them because they felt that the program was far too academically challenging. Um, some went to another acupuncture school, and um, that wasn't an option for me. I'd always been a procrastinator. I wasn't sure whether my best work came under deadline or if it only happened <laughs> under the promise of certain failure, embarrassment, and just whatever imminent demise. I also eventually learned how to plan. I eventually learned how much time it takes me to study for a quiz or a test, and over the right number of days, how many hours I would need to dedicate to that endeavor because some people, like my beloved spouse, can cram for a test 20 minutes before it happens and score a 98, whereas I can literally study for a thing doggedly for six months and might get like a C plus, 75, right? For example, to learn about one of the Chinese herbs that I use every day in my clinical practice, it's called chai hu. Uh, radix bupleurum, thorough wax root. It's an herb that enters the liver, gallbladder, pericardium, triple warmer. It's bitter, acrid, and cooling. The dosage range is 3 to 12 grams. And in order to get that information into my brain, I had to make up a story about it. So the herb itself is really good at activating the liver, which helps things move. 
And so I imagined that the liver was this cranky old guy and a lazy boy, and that Chai Hu like switches the flip on his recliner and it pushes him out of the seat and he has to stand up and move around. So that's cute, right? I had to do that for 380 medicinal substances. <laughs> Four hundred and sixty-two acupuncture points, um, and really an ocean of theory and scientific knowledge and the ability to read clinical labs. But the thing is, when I went to acupuncture school, I finally found my nerd people. My witchy anarchist herbs teacher did shamanic journeying workshops on the weekends. Only coming into coolness now, 15 years later. But anyway, um, my friend Alan and I would practice martial arts <laughs> together, doing pushing hands practice, which is kind of like kicking each other's ass in slow motion really gently. <laughs> so awesome. I even had a teacher who used crystals and gongs to balance people's pulses energetically, which was completely mind-blowing and wild. And clinically relevant. It reduced people's blood pressure. It was amazing. I went from a person who is fascinated by almost everything in this world to a person who was obsessed with the lens through which I could understand more of it. It sort of felt like me, that felt to me like life had a new dimensionality, new colors, the seasons, the weather, the elements, all of the elements were an explanation of all phenomenon in nature. I couldn't get enough. I was a very hungry mind. And school was hard. It was really, really hard. I took anatomy and physiology with the medical students because Jen had a job working at the university and I desperately wanted to do cadaver dissection. I was, uh, it was a ranked class, sorry, um, meaning that only a certain percentage of people in the class would pass. And had it not been for a lovely young lady intent on becoming a dentist, completely bombing the final, I am sure that it would have been me because I was the last ranked position in the class. I have literally never in my life worked so hard for a crap grade, which is absolutely not to say I didn't get crap grades. I got nothing but crap grades up until graduate school. It was the sort of thing that I was just one guidance counselor's nightmare after another. I remember when I told Mrs. Annalyn my sophomore English composition teacher that I wanted to go to college. She laughed in my face. My primary education was definitely a long list of failures. Every year I would promise myself to do better. This would be the year that I'd buckle down and get it right. I had all the sharp pencils. There was hope. <sighs> By the end of the fifth week, I couldn't find a pencil. My desk and locker were a mess and my teacher was already calling my parents. And the year just tumbled downhill from there. I also didn't have a chance to do well in school because frankly, being in school in this town was a fucking nightmare. 
There was rampant bullying. People were kicking the shit out of each other at school. And kids would just steal your stuff, like your book or your backpack or your coat or your clothes. Neat way to deal with that. Paper towels. Um, I actually remember the sound of a kid inside a locker, like thumping on the door and yelling, trying to get out. So I didn't have a chance to do well in school. Being in school was just one crazy day after another of survival of the fit. And college was uh, different, I guess. In college, I sort of felt like I had a voice that mattered, and I felt like I was maybe more in charge of my life. But academically, nope. Same plan, sharp pencils, buckle down. And by the middle of the semester, professors were literally like, who are you? Or how about let's just call this one? From community college to art school, well, that didn't have any more order to it. <laughs> that was just me in a room full of rich kids who were doing some level of age-appropriate masturbatory romper room. But I needed to fucking get a job. So I waited tables, and I worked retail. And if you can get your credit score to double digits, I did that. It took a lot of searching. <clears throat> it was nine years to determine what I wanted. And when I knew what I wanted, I was terrified. People who went to medical school were smart, and I never thought of myself that way. I often tell people that arriving at Pacific College was like arriving at Hogwarts. A whole world that I'd suspected existed things that I'd only ever studied on my own or with some super nerd friends, was illuminated and became more and more real with every day. I could see patterns and pathology and harmony everywhere I looked, and it just kept going. When I started seeing patients in the student clinic, I could barely talk about anything else. Jen often reminisces fondly on those days, I'm sure, about how we could never have a meal without me talking about poop. <laughs> because what's gross stops being gross when it's clinically relevant and it becomes fascinating. <laughs> Just sit down with a table full of acupuncturists. <laughs> I often tell people also that I'd never had a more spiritual experience than studying anatomy and physiology. When you cut apart this thing that we're riding around in, you see that there is so much that even medical science cannot yet explain or has any logic or language for understanding that that experience really transformed my brain and how I think. All of it did. It wasn't easy. School kicked my ass and left very little left. Jen joined a group of our friends called Flog, Friends and Lovers of Grads. They would go to the nearby pub and commiserate about being essentially single. <clears throat> I delayed graduation one semester because my mom lived us while she was going through cancer treatment. And I delayed another semester because I was learning so much working with one of my teachers that I really wanted to give myself time to soak it all up. And then really, really, there were a series of just smaller and smaller fiery hoops that I had to jump through in order to graduate. 
the Tai Chi exam that I had to pay $200 for and perform for my least favorite teacher on the faculty who had been practicing Tai Chi exactly 10 years less than I had was really one of the final sticking points. <laughs> then they lost track of one of my clinic shifts. A whole semester of work just disappeared and I had to pay for it and do it again. The list went on and I delayed taking my board exams with every single setback, sure that it was a sign that I was not <laughs> ready. And I would just sit there at the dining room table with my flashcards and my notebooks and my dry erase boards with my butt completely asleep and I studied. I have terrible test taking anxiety. I broke into a cold sweat and hyperventilated a little bit when I had to take the written portion of my driver's exam, which is literally based on two pages of a large print handbook. <laughs> the looming specter of board exams hung around me ever heavier as my classmates took them and passed them, or worse, took them and failed them. I would get right up to the 48-hour mark at the Pearson View Testing Center website and delay because at 48 hours is when you get charged. So I did that about, I don't know, four to 27 times. <laughs> Board exams historically were a two-day event that would happen at a special school somewhere in the country. You'd have to travel there, sleep over someplace, and you had four tests, each of which took two hours. And during my time in acupuncture school, they made it into a computer thing that happens on a monitor at a Pearson View testing center. Can't really tell what would have been better for me. So when I finally took my first board exam, I so completely overprepared that I actually walked in a little giddy. And I had this plan that if I passed, I was going to take myself to the Marshall Fields candy counter, which is like a notoriously special, fancy place in the world where people like me do not exist. And I was like, and I'm going to buy myself candy. Like that was my big <laughs> grown up acupuncture school, like spleen demolishing plan. Um, <clears throat> fancy Swedish fish that came in special colors. That's what I'm just saying. So. I, I got to the testing center. They make you put everything in a locker. Like, if you have a scarf on, you can't wear that. You have to, like, take your jewelry off. It's very strange. And so I, I got in, into there, and all I had was my little key. And I go into the testing room, and there's no one in there. And I, like, put my little earplugs in, and then I put the earmuffs on, and they're those weird things that you wear for using, like, power tools or guns, I guess. And I hate those things because you can like hear your blood pounding and you can hear yourself breathing and all of that was happening at this really accelerated rate. And <clears throat> I just felt like everything in my body was vibrating. But I passed. I didn't freak out or barf or even get too twisted and thought that every answer made sense and the rationale that there could be multiple universes. <laughs> because... I so completely overprepared for my first test and was so happy with my very special colored Swedish fish um, and was able to complete it in under two hours. I was perhaps maybe a little underprepared for the second one. 
Um, first of all, the testing room was full of people on the second day. And uh, this one I delayed six times. And even paid a late fee once to just buy myself one extra week. So this day was not like the first day. I'm sitting in a cubicle and there's someone right next to me. They're in their cube and I can see them in my peripheral vision and I can hear them moving even though I have the earplugs and the earmuffs on. The test has begun and I'm feeling all that queasy Werner's slosh around in my stomach. The guy next to me has two major contributing factors to my failure. One, bouncy leg. Constant bouncy leg. And two, the wrapper that the earplugs came in, he's like rolling it back and forth between his fingers, which I freakishly can hear. So I'm over here losing my goddamn mind. I'm reading the questions three and four times. They don't make any sense. They sound like they were written by the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and I look at the clock, and I have less than 30 minutes left on a two-hour exam. So I raise my hand, because you can't move until someone comes and allows you to move. See, what's up is I'm going to throw up now. So the crinkling wrapper and the leg bouncing and the nonsensical test questions that felt like insanity. And the fact is, I'm about to fail a $700 test. And after five years of school, I'm broke as a joke and literally have taken out my lifetime maximum of student loans. And if I fail this test one more time, I don't actually get to enter the profession. That was my tooth, pardon me. I don't get to enter the profession that I've spent the last five years training for. So, you know, no pressure, no big deal. So the nice lady comes, I, I see her come, the door is still open, and I dash for the hallway where I see her garbage pan and I barf into the garbage can, and she says, thank you so much for making it. <laughs> I went to the bathroom and like cleaned myself up. How do you clean yourself up after that? Not much, and I sort of, try to tell myself like okay don't just like fall apart yet like you've got 30 minutes you can go back read the test questions study the insanity that is in there and maybe take a new rubric of logic home so that you can perhaps pass someday and that's all I could do so my hurl fest not only put the kibosh on any fun spending that we had maybe planned for the year but could have also set me on a pass of like embarrassment and ruin where I don't get to be an acupuncturist. That was the longest 30 minutes of my life, to date. I cried the whole time, carrying my key back to the locker, which held every single thing I'd brought with me. The Pearson View employee told me, you know, next time, honey, you can schedule a private room. They even have garbage cans in there, so if you... And she, like, lurched her upper body forward as if fake barfing. It was like, my eyes were as big as dinner plates. I was like, you can do that? <laughs> I postponed the remaining exams three more times. I doubled down on studying. I stopped going anywhere or doing anything other than studying. I wrote songs about acupuncture channels. I made paint paintings about herbal formulations. I made wall charts, and they were all over our three-bedroom apartment. No one was ever going to save me from this. The only way out was through. 
I knew that the only thing I could possibly even have a chance of passing was to over-prepare like a crazy person, so I did. It's rare these days that anyone needs me to recall more than a few acupuncture points in a given day. I don't have to know all of those details in order to help people. It's also true that at this point, I've done between 18 and 23,000 acupuncture treatments. Learning bits about what does and doesn't work along the way, and sometimes I'm still completely stumped. And that's real. But that's the beauty of always learning something. And that's why, when I go on vacation, I take my nerdy books with me. Because this kaleidoscopic world has only become <clears throat> more fascinating to me over time. Now I'm happily helping people solve their puzzles, though much of the why of how Chinese medicine works is still a mystery, honestly to everyone who practices it. So my fun these days comes from studying ancient texts and covering, uncovering ever weirder things, philosophical underpinnings of why certain techniques were used or are effective, alchemy, magic, oracles, but most people just call me an acupuncturist. And let me tell you, when I can help someone and they need it, that's the biggest compliment I can think of. Thank you. Karen, I asked you to do this three times already. What, to start talking? Yeah, exactly. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we are joined today in studio by Crystal Frost, who is a local media personality and a frequent hearsay storyteller. Actually, Crystal was among the very first hearsay performers. Oh, heck yeah. I think there were three people in the audience, <laughs> right? About that, yeah. There was definitely more performers yeah. than audience. That's okay. It kind of goes really well as we're sitting here talking about in threes. I don't know. Three times. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did you get the idea for an, the in threes theme i was just thinking about things that people talk about all the time you know i go for the universal theme right and uh and people are always talking about how everything happens in threes do you do you believe that um no <laughs> <laughs> i had to think about that a little bit i i think that that's kind of setting you up for failure really i mean if it's like oh no bad stuff happens in threes you know what they say and nobody says that with good stuff you know (laughs) or like if that were the case then everyone would have three children and three duis you know it's (laughs) it's how it goes (laughs) at least three of each at least three but no i that's actually something that's been a pet peeve of mine when people say you know something terrible happens and then you say, oh, another something terrible. Oh, watch out. It happens in threes. And I'm like, well, you just jinxed yourself, you know? <laughs> right. That's, I don't know. So I don't, I don't like that notion. Yeah. No, I, I, well, I was thinking about when people were saying that about, was it 2016, the year that like people who everyone loved started to die and people yeah. were saying like, this is the worst year ever because people are not immortal. Right. And, uh, and so you know, David Bowie died in January. Actually, it was your husband who I, I found this out from because I was such a huge Bowie fan. Yeah. And I woke up, I was in Chicago in a hotel. And I woke up in the morning and I saw a Facebook message from Jordan that said, sad news today. Can I interview you about that? And I was like, oh, did David Bowie die? <laughs> because like, why else? Like, 
Jordan wouldn't find out before me if a relative had died. No, <laughs> but yeah. like, but David Bowie would be the. Old, I actually did get a lot of condolence calls <laughs> because you, of Bowie's death. You found that out from my husband. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I did not know because I had just woken up. I had not seen the news, <sighs> and so. To me, he is always going to be the bearer of bad Bowie news. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, you know what? I would hate him if I were you. I'd just be like, I hate you, Jordan. <laughs> I hate messengers always. But, Don't blame the messenger. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so I had to look this up because I, I remember people were saying about, you know, with Bowie, because then Alan Rickman died. And then people yep. were saying, like, everything mm-hmm. happens in threes. And I actually had to Google, well, who was the third one? Prince? And it was, no, well, that wasn't until May. It was actually, like, Celine Dion's husband. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't recognize his name, so I no. had to Google Google that even further. So it right. was like, well, I mean, yes, three people died, mm-hmm. but more people than just the three of them died. Died. Yeah, people die. <laughs> it happens. It does happen. But yeah, no, the uh, yeah, you're right. Like we always talk about it in terms of bad things and yeah. never good things. Yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> it's not like, oh my gosh, I was lucky today three times, you know. <laughs> or I do. I have heard the the uh, phrase third time's a charm," mm-hmm. and I can attest to you that for my father. That is the case because my mom is his third wife. Oh. <laughs> and she's charming. <laughs> yeah, she is. And my best friend was married three times and finally got it right. As I keep saying to her, I'm like, you don't have to walk all the way down the aisle. You know, that doesn't have to happen. But right. yeah, those little phrases in threes. And, and three is kind of a bad luck number in general. I mean, it's been given kind of a bad reputation right and yet according to schoolhouse rock and della soul yeah it's the magic number Three. it's a magic number <laughs> yes it is <laughs> it's the magic no i love that song but i, it's I a good you, song you said you know the schoolhouse rock version better i did grow up on schoolhouse rock but i know the della soul version you better. know the della soul but didn't they do an album featuring that so i might yeah like a, a special for schoolhouse rock della soul did oh. I that must remix? Google this when we are done. Talking. Well, we must Google three times. <laughs> three people. Googling I'll do it. At once. You do it. AJ will do it, yeah. and then we'll all come back together and talk about what we learned. Yeah, I think that's good. You know, you you had mentioned this too in in talking about this theme. Speaking of songs, <laughs> every time you come up with a theme, you have a, like a song in your mind. Yes. Yeah. You- actually, this song Three is the Magic Number" has been in my head ever since I thought of this theme. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, okay, well, what song are you going to... I mean, I don't know. I I always think of th- um, Three Times a Lady. Yeah, right. I hate that song. What, what, what does it mean to be Three Times a Lady? We could get into a very long conversation about what does it mean to be Three Times a Lady, and also something else um, that really bothers me is like, she's always a woman to me. And I'm like, she sounds like she sucks with that song, Billy Joel. <laughs> Maybe you need a new woman. Once, twice, three times a lady. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I, well, what does it mean to be a lady even? I don't know. This is a puzzler. It is a puzzler. I wish we had a, like, like we were a call-in show and people could tell us their opinions. What is your opinion on what does it mean to be a lady? (laughs) I'm not giving out my number though, so people, like, I don't want people to call me later. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Don't. Actually, Karen, this is what it means to be a lady. Um. Yeah, does it mean that you had to go to finishing school and that you cross your legs? And I mean, I used to be obsessed with royal culture. I don't know if you know this about me. I did not. You did not? I did not. I I was for a long time very obsessed with the way that the uh, royals do it over there in our our friend Britain, the UK, (laughs) and that the, the women have to sit very upright 
and they have to have um, their left l- foot in, f- um, in front of their right crossed at the ankles. And that's how to sit like a lady, apparently. Huh. I don't know if you do that three times and that makes <laughs> you a lady. But that was always really puzzling to me as well. And I did not know that they also weigh themselves before um, Christmas meal and after. Really? Mm-hmm. I would not care for that. No, I think it's <laughs> I think it's optional now. <laughs> but but those are just random facts that I know about the royals because I was obsessed for a while. <laughs> and did it make you question your femininity? I mean, Always. I'm very, right now I'm very aware of the fact that I am sitting hunched over and cross-legged in this chair. Are you kidding? <laughs> I look like such a, a, a jerk right now just sitting here. I'm trying to be all upright, but I can't. <laughs> and nobody can see us, so who cares? No, that's very, I mean, I'm wearing my finest ball gown (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how many people have been like all right I gave it three seconds (laughs) Uh, that's another thing is it five five second rule or three second rule actually here's here's a fun fact because you know I I work uh I I know a lot about dietetics because of the editing work that I do and it is they have upgraded it to like the 20 Four second rule, I believe. So if a piece of like food falls on the floor, it's good for 24 seconds? It can be. So the way that they did this was like the experiment is interesting and disgusting all at once. They put um, like bacteria and germs and like like salmonella and E. coli and Ew. just like dirt and like all right. this crud all over the floor and dropped food in it. Right. And like picked it up at varying intervals and tested it to see like what was the saturation point. How, how, well, they tested it like they didn't make someone eat it. No, okay. no, no. <laughs> Here, Jimmy, you eat this. <laughs> you get 24 seconds. Let's Jimmy, all pray. Jimmy drew the, the short straw that day. <laughs> and that was the last time we saw Jimmy. <laughs> He has all the diseases. So that's true, except for, you know, say what's happening with the romaine lettuce scare. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. You can't do that with romaine. No. You I just want to be like, romaine, calm, guys. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. No, I've never seen anything like this where I think like eight people got sick and we threw it all out. We threw it all out. Yeah. Do you know how much food has been wasted because of eight people? How dare and they? Jimmy wasn't even <laughs> one of them. He's like, I'm 24 seconds, guys. I made it. <laughs> we have I'm derailed. the king of the world. I'm the king of the romaine lettuce. <laughs> oh, like oh. that make me think of this Pat Benatar song, like "We Will Be Invincible" or something. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jimmy I love is. Pat Benatar. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of songs, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the other weird thing about in threes is. I've always found it really fascinating that when somebody is named after someone else, so let's say you're Karen, um, or we'll just go with Jimmy. We've got (laughs) James Sr., Mm -hmm. and then there's like Jimmy Jr., right? And then it's always the third after that if Mm -hmm. they continue the succession. Unless you're George Foreman. Unless you're just named George. (laughs) It's just George Foreman. Um, But they always call the third trip. And I find that really funny. I've met so many trips that are the third, right? So they're, they're like triple. And that's oh. where it comes from. You are so blown away. Blown away. Your mind literally exploded. Like you saw it happening. Yeah, I did. <laughs> you did see it, Karen. Do you need a minute to collect your thoughts I on do. that? I do. Isn't yeah, there a like, trip? Isn't like trip 
Palin? Isn't that a Palin kid is named Trip? Oh, there's probably a Trip Palin, and that but would I, be like Todd <laughs> Junior Junior. Right? <laughs> right. I just remember thinking, like, that's an odd name. Yeah. Like, why would you call your kid Trip? Trip. I did not. Wow. Yeah. Well, my son's huh. name is Trey, and everyone thinks that he is the third. And I'm like, well, I'm not that clever. I just <laughs> like the name Trey. Right. You know. I was like, sweet. He's, you know, from fish. <laughs> That's why you don't have a baby at 21, kids. <laughs> oh, man. Um, as far as those, it's always, why does it always go back to, like, music and food with us? It's always the thing, like, romaine and Bowie. <laughs> we like what we like. We do. I'm really excited to see what people come up with with the theme in threes, though, because... As we pointed out here today, it can go anywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. It could be three people. It could be three events with a thread that unifies them in some way or yeah. three like parts of your life. Yeah. Um, yeah right now, uh, we are slated to have three brand new performers on the stage. Oh, that's so by also, design. <laughs> no, a total amazing accident really (laughs) that's kind of amazing um so lots of different people telling lots of different stories that that should basically be you know what hearsay is yeah lots of people lots of stories that's a great idea i know i'm gonna run with that you should hey guys lots of people and all these stories um i think that it's it's cool though when you go to hearsay and you hear the different ideas because i've been doing this um you know, for a lot of years, but I've, you know, I'm not doing it every month like we were for the first (laughs) three years or so. Um, And I always, when I listen, I go, oh, that's such a cool take. I would never have thought of that. You know, three people or the moment that you said in threes, I always, I picture three, two, one, you know, like a countdown uh or third take or, you know, third marriage, (laughs) you know, things like that. So speaking of food, because that's, we like what we like. We do. <laughs> you host a new series called Foodie Scene. Yeah, Foodie Scene. It's all over the place. It's on the radio. It's on a podcast. And it's uh, <laughs> a very interesting vlog that I do called Foodie Scene TV, which, I mean, honestly, Karen, let's face it, I do it for the free food. <laughs> um, and then I also like to just kind of be an idiot. <laughs> so <laughs> I act like a, a fool while I'm eating. But um I love, I love discovering new foods and new restaurants and things like that. Um, yeah. Well, um, how many shows have you done so far? 13. Oh, wow. 13 full episodes. And then we're working on, I kind of did like a micro episode when it was Lobster Bisque Day, which is a national holiday at the Supery. (laughs) Um, it's always the day before Thanksgiving and I'm like, people, this is the (laughs) biggest day of the year. And they, they actually ran out in an hour. Isn't that crazy? They they open at like ten thirty, right? They open at eleven. They 11. were done by noon. Wow. Yeah, I was super sad. Um, get see what I did there. <laughs> super sad. Yeah, guys, that's yeah. You no, she. Real. Uh, for those of you who have not seen the video, she cried real tears. I did, <laughs> I did. but then a miracle happened, and uh, the woman who owns the supery had saved me a lobster bisque, knowing I didn't get off the air until noon, and then I cried happy tears of joy and I ate the soup <laughs> it's pretty incredible um but you know you had a question to me in advance of this uh this conversation you said is there any type of food you'd want to cover three different times oh uh, yeah um all of the f- no 
honestly, I love anything to do with um, comfort foods. So th that kind of soup, I would love to have several different kinds of soup. And we actually did a an entire episode on chicken wings. Um, I saw that one also. Which was super, <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. And I liked it because everybody has their different take on chicken wings, you know? And you can't you can't really screw it up too bad. So even if you're like, well, this isn't as good as the other one, it's still like, well, it's chicken wing. You know, <laughs> and pizza's like that too. Yeah. You know, I, I think they compare that <laughs> pizza, <laughs> bad pizza to something else that could be bad, but it's still good. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually that has happened to me before where it's like, I don't care for this pizza and I am still going to eat it. Are we still talking about pizza? <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> well, here's a question. Um, you know, since we're talking about chicken wings, you are married now, but would you uh -huh. ever eat chicken wings on a first date? Um, I personally think that that is so brave, and <laughs> I probably would have done that. Yeah. Um, but it depends on if I really like the person or not. <laughs> like, if I was like, I don't care, I don't care about you, then I would eat all the chicken wings yeah. and see how they react. Well, I, I've heard that uh, guys can be pretty judgmental of a woman who eats a salad on a first date. Um, really? Yeah. What does that mean? I don't know. Because I remember, actually, yeah, there was a first date Because once of the where... romaine scare? <laughs> 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 no, I'm going to save your life. <laughs> I can't fall in love with you because you're going to die. <laughs> e. coli. Save the life. Save your life. Um, oh, no, like, a, sorry, just really quick. There was this. I remember on a first date, I I was I was on a road trip. I was driving from Traverse to Chicago, and the, he lived in the Grand Rapids area. So I stopped to meet him for lunch, and I got a salad. And he was like, he just had some comments about that. And I was like, but I'm about to be on he the road. He was having none of it. <laughs> and you were like, it's my salad. It's my belly. It's my body. <laughs> it's my body. My body. My digestive system. <laughs> Not a book. <laughs> <laughs> it should be, Karen. Right. It should be third edition. Our bodies, our digestive systems. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know. Have you ever eaten chicken wings on a first date? I'm trying to think. I don't know if I have, but I'm also I'm a rule breaker. You're not supposed to lick your fingers. Oh, I fucking lick my fingers. Do you? It's sauce. Well, why wouldn't you lick your fingers? They're oh. your fingers. And as Jimmy has pointed out, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do we, need, we really need to give Jimmy some credit in this podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, Hashtag Jimmy. <laughs> I've heard that too with like other, so spaghetti is another one that is, it's, that's tough to eat on a first date. Hmm. Um, you know, cause it gets messy and on your, at least that's how I eat spaghetti <laughs> <laughs> on a first date. Um, yeah. I don't know. I remember my first date with my husband and we actually forgot to get dinner. We had reservations, but then we just had so much fun, like talking and having the cocktail portion. And all of a sudden we were like, oh, it's 10 o'clock. And then we, <laughs> what did we end up doing for dinner? Oh, we ended up going to like JNS or something, and uh. just, you know, <laughs> late at night, like 11 o'clock. It was really fun. I think that's a, the idea, though. If you get caught up in the conversation, then you know, maybe this third time is a charm. <laughs> <laughs> Can you have a third time a charm like 10 times? I, why not? Why not? I'm very why bad not? at math. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <sighs> yeah. Um, it seems to be in pop culture that everything is new again. 
So it's almost the third time around for the, some of these stories, you know, and you're like, geez, I had My Little Pony and now I had My Little Pony in the 90s. Now it's third generation, My Little Pony, all this stuff. And you're like, are there any new ideas or is it just constant recycled? So wait, what you're telling me is that they're bringing My Little Pony back? Oh, yeah. What? Pony's back, baby. Genuine is so happy. <laughs> he is so happy. He's like, Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's it's weird with stuff like that. I mean, have you noticed that too with like the um, the old movies that we grew up with, and then they're doing remakes of them, and then the old shows are remakes. But I mean, Spider Man has been what four different Spider Men now. It's yeah, like, come on, we get it. He's a <laughs> dork, and he turns into a superhero. <laughs> ah, stick with the original. Yeah. Come yeah. up with a new idea. Yeah, tell me something I don't know. I, do- <laughs> I know, I know about Mary Jane, y'all. I don't know why I said it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't watch reboots of old TV shows. Never. No, you never have. Okay. <laughs> I feel challenged. <laughs> what if they, what if they, so what's your favorite, like, let's say your favorite old TV show of all time? Hmm. That is a very good question. I mean, there are shows that I know better than others. Yeah. Like, I can be very competitive in a Brady Bunch um, trivia. Yeah. But that said, I would not call that my favorite show. <laughs> Did you watch the Brady Bunch movie? Yes. Okay. And did you... Did you hate it? Hmm. Well, it was set in modern day. Yeah, it was. So it was a, it was sufficiently different. Very different. This is a very hard question. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I don't know. Um, I I mean, if I really loved, loved, loved something, I don't know if I would watch the reboot because I would be afraid that I wouldn't love it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't. I, I just want to keep it in my heart as it is and pretend like everything else is not real and not happening. You know, I mean, that's what most of America does, right? Just live in our own delusions yeah. that nothing has changed. It's the American way. <laughs> denial, denial. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's the whole thing about, you know, the, the concept of in threes is just constantly, in, in my opinion, maybe just... Um, renewing yourself um and regenerating yourself into a new version mm-hmm. maybe that's it maybe somebody will tell a story about you know turning 30 that's the third decade <laughs> i remember when i turned 30 karen it was really ugly it was terrible like upsetting or yeah it was i wanted to have a really pretty princess like i'm 30 and flirty party mm-hmm. nope the friends uh threw me a dirty 30 party and everybody dressed up like I don't know. It was horrible. And we all drank bush light. And I'm like, no, it's terrible. Maybe I should tell a story about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember my 30th birthday, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah. Why? I it's probably just. Did it happen? I, I think so. <laughs> I, unless I, Are you still 29? What if I'm not actually oh. my age? <laughs> <laughs> that would be the coolest gift ever, wouldn't it? You're like, oh, I wake up tomorrow and I'm still 29. <laughs> Except I like, oh, my gosh, I'm still 29 and I look terrible. <laughs> there you go, ladies and gents. <laughs> this is the kind of fun we have it here, say. Yes. <laughs> I like it. 
Yeah. Actually, now I really feel like I need to put like touch up makeup on myself just <laughs> from what I just said. <laughs> no, you look beautiful. You are so pretty like a princess and you smell like pine needles. I don't know why I said that. I'm three times a lady. You are. You're once, <laughs> twice, three times a lady. I felt like I had to say that. <laughs> I'll take it. Well, thank you, Crystal, for joining us today. <laughs> we look forward to having you on the stage again. And like I said, everyone... Check out the foodie scene. Oh, it's fun. It's yummy and hilarious. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in December when our theme is In Threes. Thanks for listening.